0: turn to John chapter 1 verse 35 while you're turning consider what if Jesus had used an employment firm to find his, his disciples imagine the memo to Jesus son of Joseph woodcutters carpenter shop Nazareth uh, 25 nine twenty-two, from Jordan management consultants Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, We will make some general comments for your guidance, much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise that you're undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capabilities. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Uh, Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale we feel that it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic-depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and your right-hand man. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. Thankfully, Jesus did not listen to advice like that. Now, we're in the section with the earliest testimonies to Jesus Christ. And last week we looked at John the Baptist's testimony concerning Jesus. The Baptist clearly confessed two things. First of all, that he was not the Messiah. And he confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. This week, we're going to look at Jesus' calling of the earliest disciples. John the Baptist came as a witness, you'll remember. John said, a witness and to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. John the Baptist's repeated witness that Jesus is the Lamb of God, remember he said it in verse 29, said it again in verse 35, started a chain reaction that led to the calling of Jesus' first five disciples. Now, as I investigated this passage, I noticed something that's kind of unusual. Instead of just one theme, we have a couple of major themes, but then we also have several intertwined themes. And I just want to kind of call your attention to them. First of all is the revelation of Jesus' identity. In verse 29 and 35 we have mentioned he's the Lamb of God. The sacrificial servant who's going to give his life. Then in verses 34 and 49 it's mentioned he's the Son of God. And that kind of almost makes bookends for our passage. Um, because it's mentioned at the beginning and at the end. Then, in verse 51, it's mentioned that he's the Son of Man. As we'll see, that is not merely talking about his humanity, but it has a messianic import also. That's one theme. The other theme that I think stands out the strongest here is really centered on John the Baptist's statement, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold means look. Pay attention. okay, And... Throughout this passage, if you look, you'll see a ton of references. Well, not a ton exactly, but many references to looking. Okay, John looked at Jesus, verse 39. Jesus turned and saw them, verse 38. <laughs> Jesus said to them, "Come and you will see," verse uh, verse 39. So they came and they saw, verse 39. Jesus looked at him. Uh, verse 42, verse 46. Come and see again. Jesus saw Nathanael. Verse 47. Behold. Another one of those. Look. Behold an Israelite indeed. And Jesus said to Nathanael, I saw you. Jesus said, you will see greater things than these. And you will see the heavens opened. In verse 51. So, behold and come and see. And, that, and all the... All the seeing and looking connected with that really is real prominent in this passage. What are we trying to do? We're trying to get people to take a look at Jesus. yeah, And that's a prominent theme here. But also, uh, kind of a minor theme, but it's very much there, is seeking and finding. The question that Jesus asked in verse 38, What do you seek? And the, um, answer, the, all the various fa- uh, found references that we have. Andrew found his brother Simon, verse 41. We found the Messiah, verse 41. Jesus found Philip. Philip found Nathanael. And Philip told Nathanael, we found him. So there's a lot of seeking and finding going on also here. And then finally, uh, also, there's a lot of following going on. John the Baptist, two disciples followed Jesus, verse 37. Jesus turned and saw them following, verse 38. Um, He heard John speak and they followed him. uh, One of those was Andrew. Uh, Jesus said to Philip, follow me. So again, following is prominent here. So there's several themes that come together in this passage. Now, as we keep that in in the background then, in, in our minds... Let's look at the calling of the earliest disciples. Starting with verse 35. And again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Okay, now the next day. This is uh, the chronology of this section. John baptized Jesus. He was tempted in the desert for 40 days. And then day one, after he came back, the Inquisition from Jerusalem met with John. Day two, John the Baptist testified publicly to Jesus. Day 3, John and Andrew follow Jesus and spend the night with him. And then we have day 4, Andrew finds uh, Peter. Day 5, Jesus returns to Galilee. Day 6 or 7 would have been the Sabbath, and nothing's mentioned about that day, probably because they didn't do anything. Uh, And then day 8, Jesus is at the marriage feast in Cana in Galilee, and that would be either a Sunday or a Monday. Uh, based on what we've been told feast could last about a week uh, Sabbath would have been day 12 or 13 After a few days in Capernaum He went on to Jerusalem Acts five uses a few days to refer to 10 days So i guesstimating that at 10 days This meant that this all started about a month before Passover All these events are taking place uh, because Passover is mentioned in John chapter, uh, chapter 2 uh, Therefore um, the date was somewhere around March 25th I mean, um, that all this was happening. Now, that probably won't change anybody's life, but it's interesting to put it all in a framework. I think this has all the earmarks of eyewitness testimony. John remembered not only the very day that he first met Jesus, but he also remembered the time. Yeah, who else would who else would that been able to say that sort of thing but an eyewitness? Yeah. Now the Greek word translated disciple as John was standing with a couple of his disciples. That's the Greek word mathētēs and it's from the verb manthanō which means to learn. They didn't have rabbinic, they didn't have theological schools or bible colleges that sort of thing in the in the first century. What you did, if you wanted to learn the scriptures or you wanted to learn the tradition, Jewish traditions, you found a rabbi that you like and attached yourself to him. And you basically followed him around everywhere. Okay. Um, the definition for a mathetes is one who engages in learning through instruction from another, a pupil, an apprentice. Okay? Now John the Baptist had disciples. The Pharisees had disciples according to Mark chapter 2. And a matter of fact, Judas Iscariot, according to John chapter 6 verse 70 and 71, was a disciple. But we know that he wasn't saved. He was a child of perdition, as Jesus said. So disciples can and do turn away from Jesus. in John chapter 6 verse 66, interesting combination of numbers, uh, several people did turn away from Jesus, who it says were disciples when he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they went yuck and went home. Okay? They didn't stay to figure out what he was talking about. Some people just have a hard time with metaphors. I don't know why. But um, anyway, the point I'm getting at there is there's some confusion that I think does a little bit of damage in Christianity, uh, and that is we equate disciple and believer. Okay? Okay? It's not, strictly speaking, exactly synonymous. Now, granted, all disciples, uh, all followers of Jesus, all who are studying Jesus, should be believers. But there are exceptions to that. Judas Iscariot proved that point very well. The crowd that split when Jesus got into difficult saying kind of proves that point too. So all disciples should be believers, but aren't necessarily. And all believers should be disciples should be dedicated students of Jesus, following Him and paying attention to what He says and trying to learn from Him. And yet, some aren't. Okay? So believer does not equal disciple. They're overlapping diagrams, but they've been diagrams, but they aren't equal. So, many times we will find disciples failing, Yeah, you know, and walking away from Jesus but do we find believers doing that different story now one of these disciples is Andrew we know that from verse 40 one of those two disciples was John the Baptist who's the other guy well it's a funny thing about John it's almost whenever there's an unnamed follower of Jesus in John's gospel it's John John modestly just doesn't put himself in the picture he doesn't inject himself and so he very carefully, you know, he say, well, that disciple Jesus loved. Well, that was you, John. But he does avoid mentioning himself. So this is probably John himself, you know, almost certainly. And he looked at Jesus as he walked, John the Baptist did, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus, Luke says, was around 30 years old, and he was born in 4 or 5 B.C., so John's ministry began about A.D. 29 Jesus was about 33 years old now, at this time. Behold, like I said, means look. Here's one of our themes. Come and see. Look at Jesus. And he's repeating himself. He said the same thing in verse 29. Now, this time is close to the Passover, as I said. We're about a month away from the Passover. And so John the Baptist, when he says, Behold the Lamb of God, Passover imagery springs into everybody's mind that's a sacrifice and the blood of that sacrifice on the doorposts and lentil of your house made the angel of death pass over what a wonderful picture of Christ and it goes down to the smallest detail too uh, Christ has offered vinegar on hyssop uh, they use a hyssop uh, reed to lift it up to him a hyssop is what you applied the blood to the doorpost with you make applying the blood to the doorpost makes a sign of the cross uh, Christs Bones weren't broken on the cross. Neither was the Passover lamb's uh, bones to be broken. A lot of parallels. So the Lamb of God, they're thinking, oh, sacrifice. God's sacrificial servant. And the two disciples, I love this, they made the right conclusion. It says the disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. They're John's disciples. John says, look, there's the real deal. What do they do? Okay, what are we following John for? (laughs) And they make an about-face and start following Jesus. And you know what? I don't think John the Baptist minded at all. Because John was all about exalting Jesus. So the thing about discipleship, and I really, really believe in discipleship. First of all, of us to Jesus. But also, more mature believers discipling younger believers. I believe that too. But the purpose of my discipling somebody is not to make them more like me. That is not the purpose. God forbid. The purpose is to help them become more like Jesus. That's what discipleship is about. So they left and they followed Jesus. And that following, as, as we said, is another one of our, our themes. Um, disciples literally followed behind their masters. It was a matter of respect. You know, and you can see this. Actually, Lois was laughing about it when we were at. Uh, one meeting for the Evangelical Theological Society, you see these professors, and then you see all their all their doctoral student candidates following around behind them. It's like a mother duck with all the ducklings. It's really funny that um, all their all their pet students are there too, and they're all following right behind the prof. And when he sits down, they all gather around, and he you know they like starts expounding on something, and they're all taking mental notes. You know, it's an amazing thing. Um, a little weird in some ways. But that's literally what disciples did. They followed behind their master. They actually would walk behind him out of respect. He would always be the first one in the line. Now the Greek word translated follow, therefore, akalutheo, become our word acolyte. An acolyte is a new believer. And someone who is starting out to follow someone as a disciple. As what it come to mean. So... Here we are, just two guys. Now, one is observed that vast as the church is now, there was a time when it consisted of only two weak members. Only two. Everything has a small beginning somewhere. In this case, it was John and Andrew, the very first disciples. And Jesus turned and saw them following. What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi. Which translated means teacher. Where are you staying? See, Jesus turned, and this introduces, by the way, the theme of seeking and finding. I love the way the Lord asks the real question. He's better at that than Dr. Laura. You know, <laughs> just like a laser beam. Right to the point. What do you seek? Now, you know, that's a very penetrating question. Are we seeking Jesus or are we seeking something else? Yeah, you know, a lot a lot of people follow Jesus, hang around Jesus because they're seeking meaning maybe, you know, relief from their pain. And all those things are things that God can use to get our attention for the Lord, but ultimately it needs to end up that we're seeking Jesus for his own sake. So, what do you seek? Now, their answer is interesting. Before I get to that, I want to mention God's promise. Because he said a couple of things very specific about seeking. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. What a wonderful promise. If you seek Jesus, you're going to find Him. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. That's God's very character, is to be a rewarder of those who seek Him. So they say to Him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? The Hebrew word rabbi literally means "my great one." How's that for a modest term? <laughs> my great one. Come to, it's used of teachers. It's a way of you know treating them with respect. But their question is kind of seems kind of toast in view of the penetrating question Jesus asks: "Where are you staying?" Well, actually, it's not as bad as it sounds. That would be a very very modest and polite way of saying: "Can we have a meeting with you?" Okay. and you say, well where are you staying well if they tell you then it's okay for you to follow and have a meeting with them so they're a bit in awe of Jesus and as they should be and they're you know, looking for a way to have an interview with him and by the way the translation there rabbi, rabbi which means teacher means that John must have been writing for a Gentile audience mostly because they wouldn't have understood the, the Hebrew term uh, so that goes right to, along with uh, the gospel being written in Ephesus, basically, for a Greek audience. And Jesus' invitation to them is gracious. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw. Like that. It's like he says, come and see. They came and saw. Where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it's about the tenth hour. Come and see is a very common saying in rabbinical sayings. I, I, I um, have the Talmud and the Midrashim on my on my computer, and I just did a quick search and came up with 150 hits uh, on come and see. So they they love to say that all the time. Come and see. Come and see. What an approach, though, for us. Somebody said, "Well, you know, I don't believe in Jesus." Oh, come and investigate. Come and see. Yeah. I am so grateful to the people over at First Methodist Carrollton that I first encountered when I was a non-believer that put up with me for years, you know, explaining and answering questions and all that. And they just kept saying, in effect, come and see. Look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. Until I finally ran out of excuses. And by the way, they loved on me too. Jesus graciously invited them to get to know Him. Come and see. Yeah, I love that. He came. They said, "Come and see," and they came and saw. Yeah. So they came and saw where He was staying, and they stayed with Him that day. For it's about the tenth hour. Roman sundials weren't marked the same way ours are. If you have one in your garden, uh, they were marked with eleven-hour lines, and the first was at sunrise. So hour one was sunrise. Noon was marked six on Roman sundials, not twelve. Okay? So the tenth hour is going to be about four PM. Okay. So it's a little confusing in the time reference. But about four o'clock in the afternoon means that sun sundown's coming. You know, not coming quick, but it's coming. And in Middle Eastern manners and mores basically it would be necessary to invite that person to spend the night okay you it would be very very impolite not to give not to give a lodging overnight for a traveler and so that was their opportunity and they spent the night talking to Jesus again john still remembers decades later the exact time and date that he met Jesus for the first time And what a change it made in John's life. Now, what about the next link in the chain? One of the two, verse 40, who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Andrew actually is a Greek name. It means manly. But humanly speaking... No Andrew, no Simon Peter. Ever think about that? See, Andrew is not a big name in the gospel. You know, he's, he figures about three times. Interestingly, every time we encounter him, he's doing what? Bringing somebody to see Jesus. Okay, you gotta love Andrew. Okay, but he's not—he's not a big wheel. He's not a Simon Peter. But without Andrew, no Simon Peter. You know who led Dwight Lyman Moody, the great evangelist, to the Lord? Shoemaker who was his Sunday school teacher. Okay, I don't even know the guy's name. I'd have to go research it to find it. Okay, but the point was that humble Sunday school teacher led one of the greatest evangelists America's ever seen to the Lord. What if he hadn't been faithful in sharing the gospel? Humanly speaking, I'm not ruling out God's sovereignty here, so now don't anybody get mad at me theologically. But I'm just saying God uses people, you know, most of the time. And his method to lead D.L. Moody to the Lord. And there's a direct lineal relationship there because D.L. Moody leads to Billy Sunday, who heard Moody uh, preach. And Billy Sunday leads to Billy Graham. Mm -hmm. So a lot happened because of a Sunday school teacher. Amazing, huh? For those who have been Sunday school teachers and dealt with kids, you know, you wonder sometimes if they're ever listening. You have no idea. You have no idea what's going to happen. Well, Andrew, huh? Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true, definitely. So, he found his own brother. And he tells him, we've found the Messiah. That's like I said, this is Andrew's you know, normal mo. He's always leading somebody to Christ every time we see him. What is what is witnessing? Well, it's just bringing people to Jesus, you know, and letting Jesus do the work. Yeah, you know, it really is. We are witnesses. The Holy Spirit does the convicting. Jesus does the saving. All we do is do the telling. All we just go around like Andrew, even with the simplest message, saying, "We found the Messiah." You can tell somebody that over a cup of coffee. You don't need a degree in theology to do that. Yeah, you know, just pst, we have found the Messiah. Uh, I love what Pastor Chuck Smith says. He says healthy sheep reproduce, and that's exactly it. You know, if if you love Jesus, you're going to talk about Him. Try not to talk about somebody you love, so you'll end up leading people just like Simon Peter, you know, to the Lord. So. On one hand, we had John the Baptist's witness. Now we've got Andrew's witness. And when Simon comes to Jesus, in verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, or in some texts have the son of Jonah. You will be called Cephas, or Kephas, which is translated Peter. He brought him to Jesus. Now Simon... Jesus looks at him and interestingly enough he shows supernatural knowledge of him and this is something we see in this passage because as we'll see later he has supernatural knowledge of Nathaniel also but Jesus looks at Simon Peter and he sees him not as he is but as he will be. I'm very encouraged by that because I would rather the Lord see me as I will be than as I am um there's a lot of room for improvement <laughs> okay uh, you people used to wear the uh, the buttons that said please be patient god is not finished with me yet and that's it we're all works of construction that are in progress now simon is his name names are very significant in in hebrew thought remember abraham they changed his name from exalted father abram to abraham father of a multitude okay uh, Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. Sarah to Sarai, uh, from Sarai to Sarah. God changes people's names in connection with their with their personality and what he's done in their lives. So names are significant. Simeon, uh, excuse me, Simon rather is the same name as Simeon, the o- the Old Testament patriarch who with his brother Levi rashly killed all the male population of the town of Shechem. And that's all in Genesis chapter 34. Uh, the, the cause was that they, they had ill-treated his sister Dinah. So that was, uh, that was the case. Now the patriarch, Jacob slash Israel, condemned that action and his deathbed prophecy. It says in Genesis 49, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. They didn't just kill all the guys; they also damaged all the all the oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, for it's cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, that's his namesake. Say, you're a real Simon. You're real Simeon. It means you're a hothead. Okay, Simon showed similar tendencies didn't he what happened when they came to arrest Jesus the only one who pulls a knife is Simon you know, well a sword Okay, uh, and Simon Peter then having a sword John 18 drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear it's a good thing his aim wasn't better uh, and the slave's name was Malchus okay? Jesus of course healed that slave now your, your namesake is a hothead okay but what does jesus say to him you will be called kephas which is translated peter the aramaic word kepha means rock you're going to be called rocky okay peter the greek uh, is from the greek petros and means stone which is, which is you know greek translation of kepha but there is a play on words here, too, that we encounter in the other Gospels, uh, where he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, okay, you are Petros, stone, and upon this Petra, big rock outcropping, a massive rock formation. That's a Petra. okay. So you know, I'll build my church. But um, anyway, he's a stone. He's going to be a stone. He's going to be rock hard. He's going to be firm. That's in the future. Okay, it's not there now, but Jesus saw him as he will be. Isn't that encouraging? Whew. Okay, now Jesus saw it next day, found Philip, and actually it is kind of interesting because usually, um, what I read anyway—I don't have a scripture on this—but what I read is that usually disciples found rabbis, not the other way around. Okay, that the norm. It was for you to go around and listen to a bunch of rabbis and find one you wanted to study under and start following him around. Okay, The choice was up to you. And that's the pattern we've seen up to this point. But what does Jesus do to Philip? The next day, he proposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter next day that would be day 5 from Jesus returning from the temptation in the wilderness Philip by the way means fond of horses another Greek name okay they're from the Galilee Galilee is called Galilee of the Gentiles so it wasn't too uncommon for Jewish people to have both a Jew and Gentile name we see that with the Rabbi Paul or Saul you know he had his Jewish name Saul and his Roman name Paulus But anyway, um, Jesus actually invited Philip to become his disciple. And note, he does this over and over again in the Gospels. And notice people's reaction. They drop everything and follow. And just imagine, if you will, a person walking up to you. I walk up to you and I say, follow me. Got to have any questions about that before you do that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're going, "Uh uh-huh, sure, I will. Yeah, but you see, Jesus had the kind of magnetism about his personality, the kind of impact that when he looked you in the eye and he said, follow me, yes, sir, was the response. That's the kind of power that there was in the person of Jesus. I say this sort of thing occasionally to kind of disabuse the... um, the saying we have of gentle Jesus meek and mild you know. now not that there wasn't a gentleness to the Lord's Spirit I'm not saying that but we, we take that as being a weakness there was no weakness there was no weakness in Jesus he was the kind of man that could walk up to another man look him in the eye and say follow me and they dropped everything and did it no common person there now, Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. The Aramaic term Bethsaida means house of fishing. And this is another one we got a little trouble locating. The best guess is that it was, on, that it was east of the Jordan just a little ways, and technically in Galan, Galanti, Gal, I can't say this word, Galanitis, uh, that was technically not part of Galilee, but it was considered part of Galilee. Interestingly enough, in the other Gospels, Peter has his house close by the synagogue in Capernaum. So what happened? Well, it's just a conjecture on my part, but it seems logical that when Jesus came to establish his headquarters in in Capernaum, that Peter did the logical thing since he was following Jesus and moved him and his fisher fisher, uh, business to Capernaum. Makes sense. And so the only reference we have to Peter living someplace else is this other nearby city that you know he could have quit there and gone to Capernaum easily. We know Jesus left didn't settle in Nazareth but he settled in Capernaum so that's um, another thing that probably won't change your life but its background. Uh, okay The city is condemned in Luke 10 for its lack of faith though, even though it had Jesus himself living there, you know, and had the witness of Peter and all those guys. Both Bethsaida and Capernaum were condemned because they didn't believe. Amazingly, amazingly, you know, we oftentimes we think, God, if I just saw more miracles, if I had more opportunity, you know, I would believe. That doesn't seem to be borne out by the by the record. Yeah, you know, it just doesn't seem to always work that way. Okay, Nathaniel then is the next one in the chain, and Philip went and found Nathanael and said to him We've found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph Nathanael said to him Can a good thing come out of Nazareth Philip said to him Come and see Nathanael's probably the same as Bartholomew um, in Aramaic that would be Bartholmai, son of Ptolemy because that's that's they didn't have last names in the old and the in biblical times, but what they had was well, so and so, son of so and so. Well, uh, Bar-Tolmai, son of Ptolemy, is not a name proper, but is rather the family title. You're the son of so and so. So it's possible because he's, uh, Philip is always linked with Bartholomew in the other Gospels. That Bartholomew and Nathaniel are one and the same person. Otherwise, there's no other mention of Nathaniel, and so that would be strange. Uh, his name means God's gift. Nice name. Similar, actually, to Netanyahu, actually, which means gift of the Lord. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> this fits into the theme of seeking and finding, doesn't it? And he says, we found him, this time, not the Messiah, but of whom the law and the prophets speak. He's saying the entire Old Testament. It's a fact often lost on us because we, we have our 27 books of the New Testament, but actually the early church got by with the Old Testament by and large. You might have one or two letters you know, from Paul, but you didn't have much. They had the Old Testament, and they saw Jesus through and through in the Old Testament. Now, of course, son of Joseph is somewhat in error. Okay, because we know that's only part of the story. Adopted son of Joseph, yes. But, you know, that he was the son of God. But Philip didn't know that yet. You know, Philip is a brand new disciple, and he's still witnessing to Jesus. Now, Nathaniel says to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Okay. Nazareth was unimportant. You know, 1,600 to 2,000 people max. And it was about four miles away from a really big city, Sepphoris, which was a cosmopolitan Greek city and uh, yeah, where all the Romans would hang out. And uh, it's nothing. It's a little berg. And apparently they had a very bad opinion of it. <laughs> and, and Nathaniel was going, no, nothing. No, no good thing can come out of that. Now, Philip could have argued with him. But note the wisdom of Philip. Philip said what? Come and see. Come investigate the claims of Christ. Come and see. So, he comes to Jesus. And Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Under a fig tree. Hmm. Now the Old Testament patriarch Jacob, his namesake, uh, Israel's namesake rather, was noted for his deceit. He's the one who tricked his brother twice and got his birthright from him and tricked his father and you know, he tricked everybody, you know, until he got tricked. So he was famous for it or infamous for it. But Jesus said, an Israelite indeed. What happened? God changed Jacob to Israel. When the angel wrestled with him. Okay? Jacob, sneaky Jacob, got dealt with by God. And God changed him. So when Jesus sees Nathanael, he says, an Israelite indeed. Not a Jacobite indeed, but an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Jacob's full of deceit, not Israel, though. And Nathanael. He didn't say he had no prejudice, but he said he had no deceit. He was honest about his prejudices even. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? <coughs> He's honest. And Jesus commends that honesty. There's a lot of phoniness sometimes in the world. You know, people will smile and, you know, and hate you. That wasn't Nathaniel's MO. Or if Nathaniel had a question about you, he'd tell you to your face. I think you're wrong. You know? He was that kind of guy, and Jesus liked that. You know, behold, an Israelite indeed. Now, Nathaniel had never met Jesus, and he was impressed. He was surprised that Jesus accurately described his character. Went, how do you know me? And that's when the Lord said, "Before Philip called you, when you're under the fig tree, I saw you." Now, that'd be significant in and of itself because he knew which tree he was sitting under. I go, how did you know that? You weren't there. Yeah, who reported that to you? There's even more than that because fig trees are very significant in the, in the prophets all the time, It's a you know, picture of peace is everybody sitting under their own fig tree. You know, they like that. It provides good shade, I guess. Uh, they're also favorite places for prayer and meditation and Bible study, and in the Talmud, you find this time and time again. Um, so you can conjecture. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit trail, but you can conjecture that he was sitting there, meditating on Scripture, maybe thinking about the Messiah. And Jesus is saying to him, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. He knew what was going on in his head under the fig tree. And Nathaniel maybe was saying, Boy, if the Messiah is here, I'd sure like to see him. Conjecture. But whatever it was, it caught his attention, didn't it? Nathaniel answered him and said, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. <laughs> now both those titles, by the way, are echoes of Psalm 2. You know, you get them both out of that. The Lord's Messiah and, you know, kiss the Son. Jesus responded to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see greater things than These. And he said to him, Truly, truly I say to you, you will see the heavens opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus seemed to think that Nathaniel was easy to convince. Yeah. And he was impressed. Peter was told how he will be. Nathaniel was told how he is. Yeah. And he was told where he was at. And that impressed him. Jesus seemed to think that wasn't very impressive. He said, you know, you're going to see more than this. Uh, perhaps that refers to the other eight miracles in John's Gospel. But then John said, you know, if I wrote all about all the miracles, there's not enough ink and not enough parchment. So um, whatever the case, he's going to see greater proofs than he has seen, is what Jesus is telling him said, Truly, truly, I say you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Angels ascending and descending. That kind of calls us back to the story of Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28. Where Jacob had a dream and there was a ladder stretching between earth and heaven. The angels were ascending and descending on the ladder. Okay, But now it's not a ladder. Now it's the Son of Man. And he's not just saying this to Nathanael, he's saying this to all the disciples, because in verse 51 the Greek word translated you switches to plural at that point. Truly, truly, I tell y'all. That's why we need a Texas translation, y'all. You plural in English gets lost except for in Texas. But (laughs) that ladder isn't a ladder anymore. It's the Messiah. It's the Son of Man. By the way, where does the Son of Man come from? Uh, Daniel chapter 7, first place that's in the Bible, uh, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel said, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to this Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Ancient of Days, of course, being God, the Father. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Okay, so the Son of Man's the Messiah, to him is given the glory and the kingdom. And that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Okay? So that's the title, the Son of Man. Now that's one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. Yeah, that he's the Son of Man. So yes, it does refer to his humanity as well as we've seen his divinity revealed in this passage too with the Son of God. But also, it's a messianic title. So, the Messiah is now the bridge between heaven and earth. Jesus is the point of contact between heaven and earth is what he's telling Nathaniel. You're going to see more than that. You're going to see that I'm the point of contact between heaven and earth. Heaven came down, in the person of Jesus. We go up through union with him. He's the ladder. He's Jacob's ladder. So, how do we apply this? Well, basically, there's five things that I get out of this. If we seek Jesus, we're going to find him. Okay? But make sure that he's what we're truly seeking. If we're looking for Jesus, he asks us to come and see, investigate his claims and we will be convinced. If we follow him, he will reveal himself to us. And I also draw a conclusion here that notice the differing ways God de- dealt with each of these men, even at the very beginning. They didn't all come exactly the same way. Okay? You're going to run across fellow Christians that came to faith in different ways. Okay? Um, some people, the first time they hear the gospel, yes, that's for me. Blessed are they, okay? I, I wish I had my head had been considerably softer that I wouldn't have been so much a hard head, you know but it took more than that. okay Some people have a lot of questions and people have to love them and answer those questions over a period of time before they'll come to Christ. Other people, Place faith in Christ at such an early age they can't even remember when they started. But I tell you what, if you're trusting Jesus, you started sometime. You know. Now if you're not trusting Jesus, I wouldn't place too much credence in what happened around a campfire, you know, fifty years ago. But you know, but if you are, you know, it started sometime. God deals with people in different ways. The key thing is, they all started following Jesus. The key thing is they all came to faith. That's the key thing. Differing ways to get there, but there's only one place to get to. Yeah. Then the last thing is, I think it would be a wonderful thing if we all became like Andrew. That our job, just like Andrew, is to bring people to Jesus. Because he's the point of contact between heaven and earth. So, yeah, we should be like Andrew. Just bring people to Jesus so they could come and see. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You for this Word. This Word that confirms who You are. That You are the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the contact point between heaven and earth. Lord, I just pray that as we follow You, that we'll be transformed into Your image become more like You. Motivate us, Father, to reach out to those that we rub elbows with, to tell them what we found, to point them towards Jesus. We pray these things in His name. Amen.